Well, I, I would invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 for the message today entitled, Living in the World as a Child of God. It's always interesting how God's providence works um, on a day of Thanksgiving service. We're going to be talking about not grumbling and disputing. That was not by my design. Philippians chapter 2, the section we're going to study today, verses 14 to 18, uh, close the larger section that Paul began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 27. And so for the sake of the, the broader context, I want to start reading at that point. And so when you're there in Philippians chapter 2, just peek back a few verses, and we'll start and read chapter 1, verse 27, through verse, chapter 2, verse 18. The word of the Lord says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind or have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every Name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. 
Well, long before Thanksgiving became a national holiday, it was quite common, actually, for leaders and presidents to establish various days as days of giving thanks. In the early days of America, there were a variety of traditions where people would gather, especially uh, in the fall, to give thanks to God who had provided for them through the harvest. At the end of the Revolutionary War, George Washington proclaimed a, a day of thanksgiving for victory and the completion of the Constitution. Uh, during the Civil War, Jefferson Davis uh, proclaimed days of thanks after certain Confederate victories. And then Abraham Lincoln did the same after the significant Union victories, including the Battle of Gettysburg. And then in an effort to unify our nation as a whole, Abraham Lincoln issued the first national Thanksgiving Day proclamation in 1863. Subsequent presidents followed that pattern of proclamations until 1941, when Congress officially passed Thanksgiving as a national holiday. But as is so often the case, what happens at the higher levels of leadership reflects the work of other people behind the scenes. And in the, uh, in the case of Thanksgiving, it's well known that the campaign to establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday was really the work virtually singularly of one particular person, uh, an author and a poet named Sarah Josepha Hale. Probably her best known writing is titled, Mary Had a Little Lamb. But her greatest influence came through a book that she wrote called Northwood, wherein she described various traditions and common practices of living in the Northeast. And one of those that she emphasized, because it was a particular passion of hers, was Thanksgiving. And so she described the Thanksgiving meal that was traditional at that time, which featured, among many other foods, a roasted turkey and pumpkin pie. In fact, 36 years before Lincoln declared Thanksgiving as a national holiday, she wrote this in her book. It is considered as an appropriate tribute, excuse me, it is considered as an appropriate tribute of gratitude to God to set apart one day of Thanksgiving each year. The, and autumn is the time when the overflowing garners of America call for this expression of joyful gratitude. 36 years later, she wrote to President Lincoln and Secretary of State uh, William Seward, urging them to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. And so, in the midst of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made these statements in his proclamation on October 3rd, 1863. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of Thanksgiving. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners, or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility, and union. What Lincoln demonstrates in those words is that even in a time of war and suffering, there is always the need to give thanks. 
In fact, in his proclamation, he recounts a variety of ways in which the Lord had prospered the nation despite the ravages of war. And then he says this, No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, speaking of slavery, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. I want you to notice how Lincoln recognized God's sovereignty over all things. He affirmed that all of the uh, prosperity of the nation was a gift of God's hand. He acknowledged that the civil war was going to end once God's divine purposes were fulfilled. Such God-centered thinking is actually remarkable given the fact that he never claimed to be a Christian. He did what many of us fail to do. He acknowledged God's good hand even in the face of difficulty. And it's this very failure that leads Paul in this epistle to draw the larger section to a close with the command, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In writing to this beloved church that has been filled with conflict and division, Paul knows that the natural tendency of the human heart is to respond to difficult situations with grumbling and with complaining and with arguing. In fact, even though he doesn't quote the Old Testament here, it's clear there's no doubt that in his mind as he is writing these words is the account of Israel grumbling against the Lord after he rescued them from Egypt. In fact, understanding that background is critical for us to see the significance of what Paul is writing here to the Philippian church and will help us to know what the Spirit would have to say to us today. So keep your finger here and turn back with me all the way to Exodus chapter 14. And we're just going to survey briefly what is in Paul's mind. And I think it will become manifestly clear to you that this is in Paul's mind, even though he doesn't quote it verbatim. Exodus 14 tells us what happened after God accomplished the impossible. He rescued his people, numbering well over a million people out of the clutches of Egypt. And he did this by showing his uh, power over Egypt's God and gods and the created order and even over life itself. Not only did Israel walk out of Egypt without a fight, but they plundered the Egyptians who gave them clothing and jewelry and food and all manner of things and really begged them to leave before they all died at God's hand. But even with Egypt in the rearview mirror, God was not done dealing with the Egyptians themselves. And so he put it into the heart of Pharaoh to go after Israel to bring them back into the land of Egypt. And despite the fact that the Israelites did nothing to uh, rescue themselves and God did everything, When the people saw Pharaoh and his army coming after them, it says this in Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 to 12. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became frightened, very frightened. So the the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? 
Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It's just been a matter of days since they had witnessed all of the miracles that God had performed in Egypt. And they've forgotten how powerful and how good their God is. Well, you know what happened. God miraculously brought them through the Red Sea and drowned the whole army of the Egyptians. And then look at verse 31 at their response. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant, Moses. Indeed, you would have to be dead to not fear the Lord after seeing His power demonstrated there at the Red Sea. But then look at chapter 15, verses 22 to 24, just a matter of days later. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the land of, uh, into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days, just three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, the Hebrew word for bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? What shall we drink? Again, just three days after seeing God miraculously deliver them from an entire army of Egyptians, instead of saying, I can't wait to see how God's going to deliver us from this one, they say, what shall we drink? Which is a, a euphemism for saying, there is nothing to drink. We're all going to die of thirst. Well, God in His abundant grace and patience made the waters drinkable, and so they take their fill, and they move on. Look at chapter 16, verses 1 to 3. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Oh, would that we had died in the Lord, at the Lord's hands uh, in the land of Egypt. When we sat by pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the, out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Again, <laughs> instead of remembering how God had cared for them, and provided for them, and protected them, instead of remembering that time and time again, they faced one impossible situation after another where there was no human solution, and yet the Lord always delivered them. They grumbled every time. Not once did they rest in the sovereignty and the protection of God. Not once did they trust in the goodness of God. Every time they faced a difficult situation, they grumbled and complained and argued with Moses. It's no wonder then that at the end of Moses' life, as he was reflecting on uh, the Lord and what the Lord had done and the nation of Israel, he said these words in a song 
in Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, he said, They have acted corruptly toward him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. They are not his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Their defect was that they did not have the ability to trust in the Lord. They were perverse and crooked because they did not see reality for what it was. Their sinful hearts obscured and distorted their vision. They could not see God's sovereignty and His power and His love and provision because their hearts were unfaithful to Him. And so no matter how many times the Lord proved Himself, they always doubted God and went their own way. And so they proved not to be God's children. Now with that background, let's go back to Philippians chapter 2. Let me read again verses 14 to 16 and you'll hear the connections. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. We'll walk through this text by considering the what, the why, and the how of this command. The what is in verse 14, the why is in verse 15, and the how is in verse 16, and then we'll wrap up with Paul's concluding words in verses 17 and 18. So the what. What what is the command? Well, you see it clearly there in uh, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling is the inner attitude, the internal attitude, which is often expressed verbally. And disputing refers to the arguments between people. This command here is needed because the call of the gospel regularly puts us in difficult situations. And instead of running away from them as we might want to do, our Lord calls us to most often remain and endure those difficult situations. You see this going back to verse 29, which we read earlier. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So suffering for the sake of Christ is a gift of grace from God. And then in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we're, we're, when faced with conflicts and disagreements, what we're told is that we're called to die to ourselves and look to the interests of others. And that's not just a moment in time decision. That's something that we often have to endure day after day, being in a situation that we would prefer not to be in. And then the command in verse 12 to work out our salvation, to to exercise the, the spiritual life that God has given us means that we need to engage in the spiritual battle with certainly the external forces of the, the world and the devil, but also we're engaged in a constant internal battle with the flesh. Remember that if you were a member of the church in Philippi in the year A.D. 60, there was no Baptist church, no Presbyterian, no fundamentalist or independent Bible church in town. There was just one church. And that one church was filled with everyone in that city who had confessed that Jesus is Lord and who had bowed their knee 
to him. And so you had Jews and Gentiles. You had young and old. You had those who knew the scripture and those who did not know the scripture. And everyone had been a Christian for 10 years or less. And probably most were far less than that. Now, we don't know what conflicts, what the conflicts were that they were having or what the disagreements were about. But you can imagine that if there's long-standing conflicts and unresolved conflicts and there's nowhere else to go, grumbling is probably going to happen. One Greek dictionary defines the word for grumbling as an utterance made in a low tone of voice. It goes on to say it's behind-the-scenes talk. That's the physical act, and I think we all understand what it sounds like, expressing our opinions to others, uh, questioning motives, expressing doubts. But grumbling and murmuring is far more serious than what we say to others. The real problem with grumbling is the heart behind it. And the heart of grumbling, listen to this, is a heart of judgment against God. It's a heart of judgment against God. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament defines this word well. It says, it suggests the judgment and condemnation of God by the man whom God has bound to himself, who therefore owes him trust, gratitude, and obedience, but who instead constitutes himself his judge. In other words, we are those believers. Believers are those who have been redeemed by Christ. We've been saved. We've been forgiven. And though, therefore, we owe Him our faith and our trust and our obedience and gratitude. But to grumble is to turn around and not just question God, but to condemn God for what He has done in our life. I mean, that's what Israel did in the wilderness. And that's what the world of unbelievers does, isn't it? How could a good God let bad things happen? Why did He let my sister get cancer or my child die or the hurricane destroy so many lives or that earthquake destroy that city? Unbelievers default to condemning God for what He does. So to grumble and not to trust or to give thanks is an act of unbelief. Romans one twenty one says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. This is what makes every generation of unbelievers crooked and perverse, as it says in verse 15. It is that we cannot thank God, but rather we judge God. And even as, un, as believers, as, as those who have been adopted into the family of God, it is possible for us at times, even though we honor and we do give thanks to God in so many ways, sometimes we fall into the old pattern of our former father. We sometimes elevate our speculations of how life should unfold over our commitment to submit to God's sovereignty over all things. And the result is grumbling. We know, for example, that the word says, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. 
And often we say that in a positive way. Wow, look at what God has done. It was totally different and better than what I had planned. But sometimes when we're walking the the steps that the Lord has laid before us, we we pause for a moment and we look up and we say, where am I? How did I get here? What is going on? This is not where I want to be. Instead of saying, well, Lord, I guess this is where you want me. So I'm going to trust you and I'm going to trust in your goodness and your provision. Instead of doing that, we sometimes say, whoa, something went wrong. And whether we realize it or not, when we say that, we are judging God. God did something wrong. Israel's grumbling and judgment of God is why the Lord said, these are frightening words in Psalm 95.10, for 40 years, while they were wandering in the wilderness, for 40 years, I loathed that generation. And said they are a people who err in their heart. And they do not know my ways. So grumbling is not to be taken lightly. When we grumble in our hearts and it comes out of our mouth. We should repent and change our mind and think differently about the situation that we're in. Whether we find ourselves being persecuted for the faith or in conflict with others or trying to work out our salvation in difficult situations, we are to view our circumstances as the result of God's providence wherein He is seeking to accomplish His good purposes in our lives and in the life of others. And so rather than grumble in our hearts, we should cultivate thankfulness for what God is doing and what He will do in and through us. That is how we should do all things without grumbling. The second way we should do all things, he says, is disputing, without disputing. Uh, This means to argue over our thoughts, our opinions, or our perspective. This is, in fact, the same word used in Luke 9.46 when it talks about the the disciples arguing about who was the greatest. Uh, the word is dialogismon, which is the basis for our word dialogue. But unlike our word, which implies an unemotional exchange of ideas, dialogismon speaks of uh, something far more intense. In fact, consider the argument that we are told about in Acts 23, verse 9, described this way. There occurred a great uproar, and some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly. So that's the kind of argument Paul is talking about here. This doesn't mean we shouldn't discuss differing points of view. It means that the way we discuss our disagreements should not tear others down or be destructive to relationships. So how do you distinguish between an argument or a dialogue? Well, aside from the volume... An argument is competitive, where a dialogue is cooperative. An argument seeks to force a change of mind, where a dialogue invites the possibility of change. An argument is two people speaking and never listening, and a dialogue is two people alternating between speaking and listening. An argument is shots fired from a fixed position, 
And the dialogue is two people engaging in a way that brings them closer together and strengthens them. An argument, listen, is a way of uh, uh, me communicating in a way that I prefer to communicate my ideas. And a dialogue is communicating in a way that promotes understanding. An argument responds to accusations that are legitimate by intensifying the verbal blows. Where a dialogue receives legitimate accusations without retort. An argument cuts and slices and assaults. Where a dialogue binds up and strengthens and encourages. And we could go on and on, but I think you get the picture. We are not to dispute. We are not to argue. Scripture is full of wisdom on how we should communicate with one another. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Along the same lines, Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to respond to each person. Now, as we sit here, we all know that we are all guilty of violating this principle. James 3.2 says that if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. And there's only one perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So may God help us to grow in love toward God and toward one another in such a way that we do all things without disputing. So to do all things without grumbling or disputing is the what. That's the command that we're given here. Now let's consider the why. Why is this necessary? Look at verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves, he says, to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Well, there are other reasons we could come up with and draw out of Scripture as to why uh, we should do all things without grumbling and complaining and disputing. Paul's concern here is a matter of reputation. His concern is how does the world view the church? Will unbelievers see Christians as different than themselves? Will the world say that no matter what Christians say, they're really just like everybody else? Or will they hear and see something different from those who claim to be children of God? The phrase there, so that you will prove yourselves to be, is a bit of an an interpretation. A stricter translation would be, so that you may be. The verb means to become, But in the aorist tense, it looks at it from the perspective of the past, which means that Paul is not saying that if they do all things without grumbling or disputing, they will become blameless and innocent, but rather that they will have demonstrated what they have already become. Which is why the New American Standard says, so that you will prove yourselves to be. You're demonstrating, you're manifesting the fruit of your condition when you do all things without grumbling or complaining. Now, he describes that condition in two ways. First, he says that you may prove to be blameless and innocent. Those are to be understood together. And second, so that you may prove to be children of God above reproach. In that first description, blameless and innocent, those words are 
Ahendiatis, which means two words uh, conveying one idea. In English, we say things like, that's his bread and butter. Or today is nice and warm. We're not conveying two different ideas. We're just saying one thing using two words. So blameless and innocent speaks to the reality that those who have been redeemed by Christ have been declared righteous in God's sight and are thus purified by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 5.25-27 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her, so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. This is what Christ has already done. After listing a number of sins that characterize unbelievers, uh, those who are bound for hell, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6-9, such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. We need to understand, believer, that there is nothing you can do to make yourself blameless and innocent. Christ has already done that for you by taking your sin upon Himself at the cross. And in exchange, the Father has declared you to be blameless and innocent before Him in Christ. So doing all things without grumbling and complaining and disputing is a way of manifesting, putting on display that work of justification and sanctification that God has wrought in your life. The second description here is children of God above reproach. Children of God above reproach. I read earlier Deuteronomy 32.5 where, uh, where it says that Israel proved themselves not to be children of God, but rather they proved themselves to be a crooked and perverse generation. Which is a way of saying that they just proved themselves to be unbelievers. And being an unbeliever, not having faith in God, not believing in God, is a perversion of how God made humanity to relate to Him. We all know the saying, like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. By God's design, children uh, often reflect their parents, not just in terms of their physical appearance, but also by manifesting similar patterns of life in mannerisms. And so Jesus used this principle, for example, to confront the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He, he said to them, you are seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said, if if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a, a liar and a father of lies. 
So our adversary, the devil, is a murderer and a liar, and he seeks to kill and destroy anything that is good. And because we were all once children of the devil, it is true, as I said earlier, that even as adopted children of God, we can fall back into our old habits of grumbling and disputing. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers are called sons of God because God is the supreme peacemaker. He reconciles sinners to himself. He, he loves his enemies and he does good to them. And he is well within his right to judge sinners with extreme prejudice. But he is long-suffering. And he calls them to turn from their wickedness and to receive the forgiveness that he freely offers. Jesus, being the eternal Son of God, exhibited this character. Even in the face of rank unbelief and opposition, he did not argue with the Pharisees. He didn't raise his voice against the scribes. He didn't uh, cuss and curse and tear down and slice with his words. Yes, there were times when he acted in his role as a prophet and he spoke words of judgment and condemnation in Matthew 23. But it was always truthful and never exaggerated. And it was always, he always spoke with self control. So when we imitate Christ and the Father by doing all things without grumbling or disputing, we demonstrate that we are children of God above reproach. No one can say anything against us, no one can accuse us of being hypocrites or pretenders. Notice the last phrase there in verse 15. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. This world that we live in is so full of darkness and evil and wickedness that those whose speech is gracious, we appear as lights. Meaning eyes are drawn to us. It's like if you're outside in the dark of night or you're in a room with no electricity and somebody lights a candle, your eyes are drawn immediately to that light. After all, you can't see anything else anyway. But Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men, he says, in such a way that they may see your good works, even hear your good words. And glorify your Father who is in heaven. Again, I say there is a number of reasons we could draw out from Scripture of why we should preserve and pursue unity and do all things without grumbling and disputing. But high on that list of reasons is what we find here. The world is watching, whether we believe it or realize it or not. And we have the opportunity to reflect and to demonstrate who we are, that we are the redeemed people of God who are justified and sanctified by Him. And we can show whose we are, that we are children of God who follow in the footsteps of our Father. Well, we've looked at the what in verse 14, the why in verse 15. Now look at the how at the beginning of verse 16. He says, holding fast the word of life. 
How are we to do all things without grumbling or disputing? By holding fast to the word of life. The challenges that come our way require that we be rooted and grounded in the word of God and that we cling to it as our life. In what way is the scripture the word of life? Well, we can say that the scripture produces life. First Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. The truth of the Word of God is the catalyst that the Holy Spirit uses to regenerate those who are spiritually dead and give them life. We can also say that the Word defines life. Psalm 36.9 says, For with you is the fountain of life, In your light do we see light. Which is to say that with the illuminating light of God's Word, we see what is real. He provides definition to reality. So it defines life. The Word of God also sustains life. Jesus quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Scripture also sanctifies life. John seventeen seventeen. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. And finally, the word, the truth of the Bible, guards and protects life. Proverbs 2 says, Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil. So the Scripture, the, the word of God, produces life, defines life, sustains life, sanctifies life, And guards life. In fact, we could go so far as to say that the Word is our life. Proverbs 4.13 says, Take hold of instruction, do not let it go. Guard her, for she is your life. Beloved, the only way to do all things without grumbling or disputing is to be the people of the book. To drink from it, to eat from it, to chew on it, to meditate on it, to study it, to hear it, to read it, to speak it. And when we do, we will be convicted by it and comforted by it and encouraged by it and strengthened by it and challenged by it and motivated by it and taught by it. It is the sword of the Spirit that accomplishes His work in us through the Word of Life. John Piper once said, I love the Bible like I love my eyes. Not because my eyes are lovely, but because they enable me to see what is lovely. You can only know God truly through His Word. Only through Scripture can you understand that the mercy and the compassion and the goodness and the grace and the love of God. And only in knowing Him can you become Like Him. So take it up, Christian. Be in the Word of God. Don't let your feelings and and your interests determine whether or not you feed on the Word of God. Believe by faith that God will nourish your soul as you take in the pure milk of the Word. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. That is how we do all things without grumbling. And disputing. In closing, look at 
the second half of verse 16 through the end of verse 18, where Paul really adds a personal word of uh, encouragement for their ongoing faithfulness. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. This may sound a little strange to our ears, but what Paul is expressing here is an eternal perspective. If he was just interested in temporal accolades, like, hey, I just want you to reflect well on me so that other people uh, like me more or make me more popular, that would be sinful. But his concern has not to do with this life, but has to do with the day of Christ. That he would be able to boast in that day about the fruit of his ministry in the Philippians. If they ultimately turned away from Christ and rejected the word of life, his ministry would have been in vain. But if they hold fast and stand firm, his efforts of love and care for them will have been worth it. And unlike the prophet Jeremiah, whose entire ministry from start to finish was to preach to deaf ears and no one would believe, Paul's hope is that he will be able to celebrate and boast about what God did through him in their lives. I mean, we know that Paul himself did not view himself as the explanation for the change and the transformation in the lives of believers. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 3.7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. But somebody has to do the planting. Somebody has to do the watering. And it produces joy in those who plant and water when they see God bless their efforts and produce growth. In verse 17, he uses that language of sacrifice, a, a drink offering. And that was a, a liquid, usually wine, which would be poured out on top of an animal sacrifice to add to the sensory experience of sacrifice. The, the sizzling sound and the steam that would rise up, adding to the aroma of the meat that was being sacrificed. Uh, so, so Paul was saying here that if his role in God's purposes is to contribute to the sacrifice of faith that the Philippians were making, he rejoices. In other words, rather than seeing himself as the only one being a living sacrifice, the only one doing a work, and in that sense taking all the credit, he was more than willing, if I can put it this way, to be a condiment to the sacrifice made by the Philippians. He didn't need the full credit. He was just glad to be part of what God was doing. And that produced joy in him. And in expressing that joy, he wants them to rejoice and share in his joy. And so he exhorts them to rejoice and to share their joy with him as well. When God works in his people, it causes us to rejoice, doesn't it? Uh, it causes leaders to rejoice because we have a front row seat often to seeing God's work in people's lives. And it causes us as, as the people of God to rejoice because we experience the rich blessing that comes when the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives. Do you know, though, that joy is particularly and uniquely felt when we work together to preserve and pursue unity? When we humble ourselves 
and imitate Christ and do all things without grumbling and complaining and disputing. When we serve as a testimony to others of the transforming power of God, when we love one another and prefer one another, when we reconcile with, when needed or uh, minister to the needs of others, all of that produces joy. Remember, which is that wonderful emotion of delight or strength that the Holy Spirit produces in us when we view our life and circumstances through the lens of God's Word. So Hope Bible Church, let us take these truths to heart. Let us do all things without grumbling and disputing. Looking at this whole passage from the, a big picture, let us, as we saw in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, live on earth as citizens of heaven. Let us, as we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, live in the church as Christians. And let us, as we've seen here, live in the world as children of God. All by His grace, all in His power, and all for His glory. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, again as we reflect on these truths and recall how easy it is for us to look at the nation of Israel and uh, look with disdain at their unbelief and their grumbling, and yet how quickly it turns to conviction because we realize how we are very much the same. But we thank you that unlike them, we have the Holy Spirit. Unlike them, we have been saved by Christ. It's nothing that we have done, but solely your work in us. And so help us to be your children, to, to prove and demonstrate and put on display that transforming, sanctifying, justifying work that you have done. Lord, even this week, again, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, as we gather perhaps with unbelievers, let us manifest what it looks like to, to do all things without grumbling and disputing. Help us to be your children, to be lights in this world so that those who hear and those who observe our behavior would ask and give us an opportunity to proclaim Christ. For his sake we pray. Amen.